Hey, Circle Take listeners, thanks for joining me. Today we are talking with writer and director Vincent Michelli about the first feature film he directed, the 2016 Letter of Love film to the horror genre, Fear, Inc. So as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Rule one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is a deep, deep dive and no plot turn is sacred, so you've been warned. Rule two, before you go any further, you should watch this movie. I promise you, while it's possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, it's a million times better if you watch the film first. So, before we get started, how to watch Vincent Michelli's Fear, Inc. As of the recording of this show, it's available on Amazon Prime, iTunes, YouTube Movies, Google Play, Hulu, and Vudu. This film is out there and easy to grab, so no excuses. Vincent Michelli's Fear, Inc. Get a hold of it and give it a watch. All right, guys, everybody one, please. Straight away, guys, hold the talking. Here we go. All right, guys, pictures up. Pictures up. Pictures up. That's real sound. Sound speed. Vincent Michelli interview, take one. Mark. Hello. And action. This is The Circle Take, conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film. And over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first-time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is producer-director Vincent Michelli. Vincent studied film at Chapman University, then worked as a picture editor in reality TV for a few years while making viral videos for the likes of Funny or Die. After finding success in comedy videos, as well as establishing a solid working relationship with his Funny or Die partner in crime, writer-producer Luke Barnett, Vincent set out to direct his first feature film in 2016. The film, recently completed and released, is called Fear, Inc., and tells the story of a group of friends who kind of accidentally hire a company that specializes in creating hard-to-tell-if-they're-real custom scares for its clients. Vincent's producing partner, Luke Barnett, wrote the script for the film, and it had its premiere at the acclaimed Tribeca Film Festival in 2016. Vincent Michelli, welcome to Circle Take. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. So let's jump right in here. Tell me about this. You guys made a bunch of really great Funny or Die videos. A lot of them went viral. What was it about this particular short that jumped out to you guys rather than, say, another one of the videos you'd made that was also successful? Right. Well, we we kind of had heard for a long time, being in L.A., being filmmakers, that if you want to make a film, you should make a genre film, sp- specifically a horror film. So when we were talking about the short, Fear, Inc., first of all, I loved the concept. I loved the idea of this company that you can hire to take your fears to the next level, you know, sort of this escalated haunted house sort of concept. Immediately, I thought if we're going to do a feature, this would be something I would love to, you know, spend a couple years of my life on. And you thought this project had the most true genre to it to take it into a feature film? I did, yeah. I think, you know, when when Luke first pitched me the idea, he had a friend who was obsessed with haunted houses and invited him to go to this thing that he found out in downtown LA called Blackout, which is something that you pay 150 bucks for. You have to sign a waiver. They they, touch you. you They put you in a coffin. They do all sorts of crazy stuff. And he asked Luke, do you want to go to this thing with me? And he said hell no, I don't want to do this. Right. So, But he ran into him a week later and he said, how was Blackout? And he said, you know, it was better than the other ones, but for 150 bucks, I want more. Still and not scared enough. Still not scared enough. And so Luke and told me this story and said, what if there was a company that you could hire? And so I thought that's a great idea. So we we made a short, not really knowing for an co- online contest that we ended up getting top six in and 
it went a little viral. And a lot of the comments on YouTube were, we'd love to see this as a movie. And for us, that's what made us decide to do the feature. When you're developing the script, did you guys take into account any of the sort of like YouTube comments from the short film and go, ooh, there's like they didn't like this. They did like that. Let's try and work some of those ideas in. Not really. I mean, I think the tough thing with anything that gets a little bit of viral attention is you're going to get trollers, people that are just going to hop online and say nasty crap. People whose it seems their sole purpose in life is to hate everything. Yeah. So it's really hard to pay attention to that stuff and legitimize those comments. But when we were in development, we spent a lot of time talking to people and reading the script out loud and getting feedback. And anytime a comment kept coming up, that's when we took it seriously. Like if multiple people said the same negative thing about the script, then we'd address so that So you're, you're not the writer in this film. Your partner is. But because you are both producers, you're very hands-on the development of the script. Yes, that's correct. How long did you guys spend working on the script? I think in total, it was probably a year and a half, maybe close to two years. I'm trying to look back at think back at the timeline, but we, we shot the feature in 2015. So I think the short was end of 2013. So almost immediately after the short went up, we went into development on the script. And so we, I was in every meeting from day one with Luke and my sister, Natalie, who developed the short and produced and developed the feature. And we, it was the three of us that kind of from day one started putting postcards up on the board and breaking the story. Great. You know, I always ask this because everyone wants to know how you got the gig And it feels like on this one, you got the gig by making the gig for yourself to get. That's exactly right. The comment I've heard a million times is you have to be in L.A. for 10 years to kind of catch your break. And so I spent 10 years wanting somebody to hire me as a director and nobody, you know, I got close a couple times, but nobody really hired me. And finally, I was like, I just need to. I need to make my own thing. Right. Yeah. Surprise, that never happens. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about producers. The internet tells me that there are 17 producers on this film. Oh, my goodness. Which seems extraordinary. And so my question is, are there really 17 producers, if not how many? And was it difficult to wrangle that many producerial people while you're making the film? Well, if you're considering executive producers, then yes. Prob- that's probably about right. I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but I know... You know, this was our first film, and so we raised every dollar ourselves. We didn't have any big studios or companies write us a check. It was, we raised every dollar. So, And what was the, the total budget for the film? Uh, just under half a million. Just under half a million. Yeah. That's a really small budget. Yeah. Did you have that spread out? Was it like a handful of investors? I know some people, uh, when they're doing like a sub-million dollar movie, they'll go the route of like talking to every dentist they know, and, and they're building at $10,000 at a time. Yeah. And it's a slow grind. Yeah, that's kind of what we had to do. Okay. No, we, we of course, we, we had the script, and we got a lot of good feedback on the script, and we were ready to take it out. And so our first plan was, we don't want to hustle to have to raise all this money. We want, you know, a studio or somebody to, to cut us a check, and nobody wanted to do that. Everyone loved the script and said, go make your movie, give us a call when it's done. Sure. I'm like, well, we need, <laughs> right, we need right, money right, to right. do this. Circular conversation with so, those guys. And then we had contact with a couple people that finance movies, and it was kind of the same story, except their response was, I'd love to be involved. I don't want to be the first one to write a check. And we kept saying, well, somebody has to be the first person to write a check. So Luke and I finally got to the point where where we, you know, we did a version of the budget where we figured out how much we would need to just shoot the movie, no post, no nothing other than getting out there to shoot because we wanted to start making offers to cast. And so we collected our credit cards together and we figured out how much do we physically have to start making this. And then we started going back to those same investors and we said, this is how much we have. 
do you want to put in money? And it was basically $25,000 at a time. And I can tell you from experience that that model has worked for many other filmmakers is because the experience of, I want to make my first film and everyone says, I like your stuff. I don't want to be the first guy. If you pony up with a little bit of your own money to say, I'll be the first guy on my own product, then yep. they're like, okay, I'm, I'll get in line yeah. behind that. And it was great because when we were you know, in the process of selling the movie, Luke and I were the primary investors in it because we put a lot of money into it. And that helped us as first-time filmmakers not be too precious with the material. We knew we had to sell the movie. We, we needed our money back. So we put our producer's hat up, back on for that stuff, which was great. When you guys were gearing up to get into production, did you guys bring any of your Funny or Die people along from, from past experiences, or was it a whole new crew? No, it was a lot of people that we've worked with uh, on Funny or Die stuff and other shorts. Our DP was... Sean, he worked with us on Funny or Die stuff, our sound people. A lot of our crew came from that world, which is great. So they That's knew great. how to work fast. They knew how to work cheap, which was essential on this movie. That's great. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of production. How many days was the shoot? Principal photography was 15 days. 15, and there's a, is that a five-day week or a six-day week? We did five-day weeks, So which, which we knew for no money and working really fast. We wanted to give crew weekends. And you had a lot of nights, I feel like. It was almost all nights. Almost all nights. Well, the so that's, first, that's a rough shoot. Yeah, the first week started in days and transitioned to nights, and then it was pretty much all nights from there. Right, and then you, you typically start the week where the first couple day, days are the daytime stuff, and then you go into swings, and then you're yep. nights. Yep. And then it's just the weekend is basically just turnarounds. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Which that's is, exactly what, what it was. And we It was are, a bit of a brutal schedule. It was crazy, and we didn't want it to be 100% nights, so when we were scouting locations you know two-thirds of our movie takes place in one house so we had to find a house that we knew we can we can black out and do day for night um so a lot of that stuff in the first week we did day for night we did we did the day stuff obviously during the day outside but then we did a lot of day for night and then eventually when we started to have to do outdoor night stuff we were like full-blown you gotta swing into it yep was this a a union film no all uh, non-union. All non-union. I mean, we the budget's s- too small. SAG actors, of right. course. Obviously, it's SAG, but there's yep. no other unions. It's yep. too small. Yep. What kind of cameras do you guys shoot on? We shot on an Alexa. Okay. Ari Alexa, one camera. Well, and was that a DP choice, or was that something you guys knew you wanted to do? Our DP had worked with an Alexa before, but we had a, we had a connection to a guy that owned an Alexa that uh, EPs on this film had worked with before. And so he has, he owns a couple different Alexas. So gave us a crazy so got a great deal, deal <laughs> right, right. on an amazing camera. So right. we we're like, we told our DP, this is the deal we have. Do you right. want to shoot an Alexa? You're one of your first features on Alexa. He said, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, your answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's cheap. Yeah. Uh, how, how big was your crew? When we were in the house, we were probably with cast and everybody, probably 30 to 40 people each okay. day did you have like maybe three or four trucks or did, was it like you know what camera to, you don't get your own truck you just gotta squeeze in the back of a car or something we're gonna make this work we the only tr- we had one truck for grip gear the just grip and lighting truck and that's it yeah and since we were in the house for two weeks basically we pulled the truck up and unloaded it into the house and then right. it stayed on the street for two weeks right. i imagine you're probably at that budget you're working with uh i know this happens a lot with smaller projects where you know, you hire a, a kind of owner operator grip truck guy. Yep. And, you know, by the end of the day, the truck is empty. Yeah. He's pulling everything out just to make it happen. The truck was yeah. completely empty for two weeks. Right. right. And then, you know, when we went out to the desert for the last week where we had our big kind of finale scene, crew got a little bit bigger. Then we ended up having trailers and stuff like that just because, you know, we were shooting in a desert overnight. We wanted people to be comfortable. Right. Town's got to have somewhere to yeah. change and stuff. Did you have any crazy, crazy long days? 
No, we that was one thing we tried really hard to do was stick to 12 hours. We've heard too many horror stories and we've all been a part of those sets where you're not getting paid anything. There's no craft services. You're eating pizza for dinner and you're working 16 hours a day. And right. we said, no. Pizza is not a meal. Pizza is not a meal. We had good food on set. We had a decent, you know, craft service table and we did not work people over 12 hours. There were a couple days where it ballooned up to like close to 13 hours, but we didn't, we never went over that. Right. Just a little bit over. Yeah. Let's talk about the house a little bit because so much of the film takes place in that house as the director, were you concerned about being confined in that house, being trapped in that house for too long? And were there ways that you planned the shoot to try and mitigate that? Yeah, I I was concerned about that. And we spent a majority of our pre-production time looking for that house. We looked at tons of houses and it was tough to find something that did all the things that we wanted to do in the script. But I didn't, we intentionally, we wrote it so that it would take place. Most of the film would take place in one house. We knew it would be a lot more contained, a lot easier. This being my first film as a director, I was excited about the idea of not having that variable of having a million different locations. Sure. I wanted to I wanted to go into one place and just figure out how to creatively explore that one location. So I was excited about that, but it was really hard to find a place that did all those things that we needed to do, to do that we can also afford on this budget. Did you ever think about breaking it up and to be like, you know, we can't find one house that does it all. Maybe yep. there's like an exterior interior thing we can do. Yeah, or something? We, we I mean, we crossed all those bridges and every one of those conversations ended up turning into this is going to be way more complicated. Right. And, and expensive then, and expensive. We ended up finding this place in Woodland Hills that was off of Airbnb and they had never shot a film at their house. You know, we were tempted to be slightly dishonest in the sense of of saying, oh, this is a, this is a student film sort of thing. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. And the other producers didn't either. And so we just told the owner of the house, look, this is a feature film. We're going to have 30 to 40 people here every day. We're shooting overnights. We're going to have cars parked on the street. This is a horror film. Like we told him everything because I knew this was if we're going to pick a house and this is two thirds of our movie, we cannot get kicked out halfway through or our movie's done. And so I wanted to throw everything at him and have him still say yes. And he did. And we also told him, we don't want you to be here every day because you're probably going to freak out. So he didn't really check in on us. Right. He did every once in a while and we didn't destroy his house or anything. So I wonder if the location scouting businesses are like super <laughs> like on the defensive. You know what I mean? Because I feel like so many stories I hear lately are like, that's a great location. How'd you find it? Airbnb. Yeah. And I feel like independent producers are using Airbnb as their free location scouting service and then just contacting the homeowner directly yeah. rather than getting that location fee. And I wonder if the location fee companies are sort of, you know, prowling for that and how they're dealing with that. You know, we, we tried to go through a few location services and it's their fees are insane. And I, I don't know if they're used to big studios coming in and shooting. And so they charge $10,000 a day to shoot at, at most places. That's where they would commercials start. are the guys who are holding the line on those prices because they're willing to pay it and they're in and out in two days and the homeowners yeah. are like 40 grand. Thank yeah, you. of course I'll do it. Yeah. But when we're coming in with no money, I think $10,000 was our total budget for for the for whole house. Yeah. They would laugh at us and we're like we don't right. we don't have that money. We can't right. do that. So we we had to find find it on Airbnb. So the 15-day shoot and then you get into editorial and you you worked as the editor on this film as well. I did. And you have a background in editing a lot of like reality stuff. Yeah. Paying the bills, doing editorial work while you're doing your your short films and stuff. The reality TV world is kind of known for the editors also being story producers where you're sort of finding the story in this sort of crazy footage that may or may not really connect. How much of that 
skill set did you find coming into play editing this film? Yeah, I spent 10 years as as a reality unscripted editor or predator producer. And that's true. I mean, you that world relies so much on editors just digging through hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage to find good content. And so as a director, that's a huge asset because I can show up on set and I know exactly by the time I've done my storyboards and shot lists and I show up to set, I know what I want the scene to look like editorially because that's ultimately what all your footage is going to have to go into an editing process anyway. So I have a pretty good sense of what I want because of my editing background. I'm comfortable saying let's move on when I know we've got it. I don't need to do 15, 20, 30, 40 takes of something to try and find something in a scene that I'm not sure if it's going to cut together. I'm pretty confident. How many, how many takes were you typically doing on this film? Three or four. We didn't have time to do that many. Right. I mean, some of the bigger complicated shots, we went into 10, 15 takes, but that was more based on the choreography was complicated. Yeah, if we were doing a big Steadicam shot or something where a lot of action was happening, we right. sometimes would go up there. But if you look, go through our bin, it's it gets a little disappointing because it's like, you have two, three, maybe yeah. four takes of a scene to yeah, do something. Yeah. Our actors nailed it on take one, which was amazing. They so, better. Yeah. <laughs> so as you're editing, did you have the opportunity to do any pickup shots, any reshoots, anything that when you were in the editorial process, you realized, oh, this beat's not working or things aren't connecting right? And, and did you have to go out and do any pickups? We did do pickups, but we didn't reshoot anything. The way that it worked for us is we we wrote this opening scene of the movie, the scene that Abigail Breslin's in, with the idea that we're not shooting that in principal photography. We're going to hold that because we wanted a big cameo to come out. We wanted a big star to come out and do that scene. And so we thought, because this is our first film and we've never done anything like this before, let's shoot our entire movie without the opening scene. Let's get great cast. Let's make an amazing movie. Let's cut a cool sizzle together and then let's go out and try and get a big actor to say to sign on knowing that this film isn't going to look like crap because we knew we could pull it off so that's what we ended up doing and we shot in august of 2015 i think it was february of 2016 we did the opening scene with abigail and right around then we scheduled another day of pickups and pickups was basically driving shots in la a couple inserts of stuff that we have in the haunted house and one of the first scenes of the movie but that's about it we didn't reshoot any any scenes we didn't bring any of the main cast back for anything Uh, let's hear the clip of abigail and this is a a totally cold open with a character and this is sort of the classic play uh, that scream did that really sort of blew people's minds which when you're doing a film like this where you're playing so much on the genre the film sort of opens with this and you're like oh i know this scene Mm -hmm. you know you're already having fun with the expectation of where the scene's going and this is where she meets the security guard after she's been chased through this parking lot with her screaming terror Oh, Every, everything all right, ma'am? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just a little bit flustered because I, I, I basically like paid for this thing and then it just, it turned out to be a really bad idea. Yeah. I'm just, uh, just trying to get to, to my car. Yeah. So. Listen, if you see anything strange out here, my office is right over there. Don't hesitate. Okay. All right. Thank you. Ninety-nine. <laughs> you know, one, uh, one of the things that jumps out to me is the jump scares in the film, and we heard one right at the top of that clip. Is, yeah. is she's jump scares with this uh, guy? Did you guys study jump scares in, in preparation for this? A little bit. We, I mean, another one of the reasons why we made this movie in the first place is because we, I think there's been this insurgence of uh, elevated genre movies, elevated horror films like the It Follows of the World, 
The Witch, movies that are have really slow burns, don't have jump scares. And so for Luke and I, we knew we wanted to make something that was a harken back to 90s, 80s, 90s horror that had jump scares. So we were shameless in, in trying to pull, pull off a couple of those. So yeah, so as a director, I just engulfed myself in all those movies before we did this, before we shot this. And then in editorial, that was one of the things that we spent the most amount of time tweaking were the jump scares. You know, we had people come in and watch scenes and if they jumped, we knew it worked or they would, you know, play with the timing of them. And it was really tough to get it down. It, it, it feels like it is like a game of, of frames at it a certain point. really is. like, oh, just two more frames and it's scarier. It really is. And, and every one of our jump scares we tweaked to death. Um, no pun intended. We, we <laughs> tweaked it so much to the point where it was like we would try it. Uh, okay, a couple extra frames there. Try it again. Take a couple frames out. Try right. it again until it was like, all right, that's the perfect right. amount yeah, of time. Yeah. Is, there's a sweet spot to <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I spent some time. I recently did a jump scare movie, and I spent some time on YouTube. Well, the whole the whole team did. We're you know, passing videos to each other, uh, watching like jump scare compilation videos that yeah. people put together. Yeah. And you, and you, you do find that there's like a, there's a recipe that you have to sort of follow and that you, when you get into that game of minutia, it is that finding that perfect number of frames before it happens yeah. to, to, to get it to sit right. Yeah, it's that. It's the it's the anticipation leading up to the scare that's big. Um, yeah. That's a that's a big one. And it's big. And I don't know if you found this, but I found it was bigger than I thought it was going to be. Sometimes yeah. I thought like, oh, that's enough time. And you're like, oh, no, it, it wound up being two or three times longer than I thought it was going to be to start with. Yeah, no. Which is really surprising. It is. And and if you notice, our one of our best jump scares in the movie is what we just listened to with Patrick Renna and Abigail Breslin at the, at the top of the parking garage where she runs into him. And that's because we shot that scene four months after after principal photography where I learned, edited the entire movie and I realized ah, I could use a lot more time. Right. So that's a nice, long, drawn-out shot of her walking yeah. all by herself. I knew that was like, that's that's probably 75% of a good jump scare is the anticipation leading up to For it. For sure, yeah. If you could do that and you can get the scare to happen on the right frame and have good sound design, that's, that's yeah. kind of and, the And like we heard in that clip, the sound design, like, yeah. Is, yeah, I mean, that's the same. You don't have, you have to see it. It makes you yeah. jump. It's, it's like the, ra- I call it the Raimi scare. It's like yeah. you, can, you can make a jump scare out of anything almost yep. if you've got a sharp enough crack if you, on the it's, sound effect. It's the high end of a sound effect and it's the low end. If you get that yeah, yeah. perfect mixer together, you'll you get got it. Yep. <laughs> You'll get them to spill their popcorn, exactly. which we've seen a few times with people watching our movie. How satisfying is that, by the way, when you're oh, in a theater the with an audience watching them jump? It's the best. We had we when it premiered at Tribeca, we had four screenings that were all sold out. And so the first couple, we sat and watched the movie with them. And then the last couple, we just stood in the hallway of the theater and watched people's faces for an hour and a half. So great. And it was amazing. It was a mixture of people literally spilling their popcorn during some of the scares, which is like... You know, when you go, you spend all this time doing this work and you don't know if it's going to be scary, if the jump scares are going to work. And then when you see them do it, it's like, oh, it's amazing. People covering their eyes during the saw scene. It's just like girls grabbing their boyfriends like they don't want to watch it. It just, it was, it was great. Amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about mistakes because so much of making a great movie is uh, your ability to pivot when things go sideways. Because as anyone knows who's made a movie, you know, the job is not how you respond when things go well, it's it's responding when they don't. We like to play a little game uh, we like to call Did That Really Happen? <laughs> Brought to you by the hive mind that makes up the comments section on IMDb. Since your film is a mashup of the Is It Real or Isn't It Puzzle film and a classic horror jumper, you're going to hear 
some mistakes made in similar films, possibly submitted to IMDb by its fanatically observant users, or possibly completely made up by our own resident IMDb geek. The rules are simple. You listen to the goof, tell if it really happened, or if we're full of it. Ready to play? Let's do it. All right. Here's your first one. Everyone has that one annoying friend who can't stop quoting movie trivia, and thanks to Wes Craven, now we're pretty sure he wants to kill us, too. Your first quote is from the 1996 film Scream. Randy says, here comes the obligatory kit shot while watching Halloween and everyone cheers, supposedly at the sight of breasts, but the scene they are watching at that precise moment doesn't show nudity. The girl's breasts in Halloween aren't revealed until a later scene, and some claim not at all in the video version. Uh, Some IMDb geek notices they're not watching the correct scene. Is that how it went down in the film, or did we make that up? I think you made it up. We did not. Oh, really? It is completely true. Oh, man. I know. Wow. People have time on their hands, man. (laughs) Your next quote comes from the 1997 film that undoubtedly wins the title of Worst Film Ever at every Suicide Prevention Center's Christmas party, David Fincher's The Game. (laughs) The film takes place in the days leading up to Nicholas Van Orton's birthday, which is in October. But, in one of the scenes as his car goes by a Hallmark store, it is clearly advertising Mother's Day, which is in May! Definitely made that one up. We did. Yeah. But you know what the funny thing is? It's actually, uh, it's the Hallmark store was advertising Father's Day. Oh, really? Which is in you know, The reason why I said you made that up March is because David Fincher is notorious for being so particular with his films. And I'll bet you when he watches that scene, it he drives, probably, him probably crazy. drives him crazy. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> Your last quote comes from the film that made sure the Gordon's Fisherman would forever strike fear into the hearts of an entire generation. This quote is from the 1997 film that proved Kevin Williamson didn't just get lucky the first time. It's I Know What You Did Last Summer. When Julie and Helen are looking at David Egan's obituary, it mentions that he was 28 when he died. But when they go to see David's sister, she says he was in the class of 92 at high school. So that would make him 23 when he graduated. That's a very specific goof to make up. I say true. You are correct. Yeah. You're good at this game. <laughs> I got the first one wrong. But <laughs> as, uh, as you can clearly see, uh, IMDb will uh, work very hard to find every little flaw in every single movie ever made. But uh, let's talk about uh, you specifically. Is there is there anything that happened on set, a mistake that was made or something that was overlooked that, that cost you the ability to like get a shot or like you had to take a setup out that you were hoping to get? Um, we didn't have any major, surprisingly, we didn't have any major mistakes happen on set. We did have a couple, there were a couple days that I just completely misjudged how long it would take to shoot. So for the most part, we, we made 
all of our days without losing shots or losing significant shots, which is which is a miracle. But the day we shot the saw scene, the scene that takes place in the garage, the big torture scene. Which is a really complicated scene. There's tons of prosthetics. There's yeah. tons of practical effects. Yeah. There's it's, it, And it's a small space. Yeah, that was all done. That was scheduled for one day. Um, that's one of the scenes in the movie where I was just like, I was so stressed out. I wish we had more time. There are so many shots I had to cut from that scene. It ended up working out, and a lot of people say that's one ends up being one of their favorite scenes. So I don't know if that's you know meant to be or or what, but it, it that was that was a scene where I just kept looking at my first AD, and I'm like, dude, we're running so far behind. And luckily, our first AD just kept looking at me, going, "That's not your job to worry about. That's my job. Just right. keep shooting, keep doing your thing." Right. So. Was, was he helping you out trying to like pick off shots you don't need and be like, you can go without this one. Just keep going. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, that was mainly my DP and I that would, that would sit down and, and realize like, okay, we don't need this shot. We don't need it. This was a little gratuitous anyways. And our AD would, would confirm that. And every once in a while he'd jump in and be like, do you really need this? And luckily with my editing background, I was able to make a decision pretty quickly and say, you're right, we don't need this. Let's move on. You have a pretty strong editing background. Was there anything that you didn't notice until post? that you had to solve in post once you realized it had happened? Not really. I mean, there are a couple, once the twists start happening in the movie, there's a lot of intricate performances that may give away or not sell the, you know, the landing of a, of a specific twist. And so that w- in terms of editorial, that was the hardest thing for me was I wish we would have had more time to do different takes with different performances and different nuances of the layers. Because it's so, you know, our actors were so amazing. And, you know, every day on set, every every time, you know, we'd shoot a new scene, they would sit down with me and be like, all right, what do we know? What do we don't know? Because, you know, a majority of the characters in the movie don't, they're acting like they don't know what's going on, but some of them do know what's going on. And so that's, that's a lot of layers. You know, when we're doing two, three, four takes of a scene, we don't have a lot of choices in the edit bay, and we're realizing certain twists are not landing exactly the way that we, we want them to. It's re- that was something I, in terms of editing, that I ran into issues with that we had to kind of cut some lines and figure out, like, all right, how do we really, like, maybe we juice up the score a little bit, or there's certain things that we're going to have to, like, live with. Is there anything in the film that just makes you cringe that's just hard to watch? The saw scene is hard for me to watch partially because I know how fake it is and it just it's almost like PTSD for me or because that scene was just like so hard for me to get through. You're you're still thinking about all the shots you had to get rid of just to make the day. Yeah. And it's hard for a lot of other people to watch because they're grossed out by it. That's a scene where I really don't like torture porn movies. So the fact that we're making fun of a torture, you know, one of the biggest torture porn franchises in the world saw in that scene it's it's hard for me to watch for a lot of for a lot of reasons so were you concerned about the prosthetic in that scene the, the gag in the scene is he, he cuts his best friend's hand off yeah and we do an insert shot on the prosthetic yeah was there any thought in like how close you want to get to that no the big thing there and that was one of the major cuts from the shot list we had so many different angles and stuff that we wanted to do with the prosthetic but because of the blood gag because of how much time we would have to clean up every single time we did that take and we ended up with this really tight close-up, which looks good. But then the other point of it was we kind of wanted... There's two big gags in that scene. And we wanted that gag to be... We intentionally... Like, is this real or is a this little, fake? A little more muted. A little bit more... 
Yeah, and a, and, and, and a little bit more over the top in the sense that people are like, this is probably not real. So then the second gag feels a little bit more intense and a little bit more real. Right. Yeah, I, w- I wish we could have shot that 15 different ways and just done something, something more cool with it, but it is what it is. Let's wrap it up with the circle takes and talk about the things that you learned and the takeaways from this film. You know, before I do that, I want to play a clip. You know, we're talking about that fine line between is it real and isn't it real and the layered performances that the characters have to do. There's a scene early on where the four of them are sitting around. They're discussing the idea of Fear, Inc. and what that company does. And our hero is really intrigued when everyone else is telling him what a terrible idea it is. And there's layers of performance going on here because they're playing that they think it's a bad idea. Right. Um, but they're also sort of laying out, like, here's here's what this film is going to be. Mm-hmm. Let's take a listen. Wait, custom scare thing? I, I Okay, I am 99% positive that that's the thing that my boss just did. Remember what I was telling you about that? Uh, the scare company, or Fear something, maybe? That. No, yeah, Fear Inc. That's it. Did they say how it was? You're kidding, right? Yeah, people said it was horrible. You, you definitely don't want to do this, okay? You know, a crazy look in your eye right now and someone as fucked up as you in the head would not like it, okay? Why? Why did I say it was so bad? Was it, was it not worth the money or something? First off, unless your sugar mama's gonna pay for it, you can't afford something like this. Secondly, they like hurt you. Like physically hurt you. I'm sure emotionally too, but physically, like the, the company, it's not legit. And they, they find people that like people like you Okay, who who like are looking for something more intense, and then they just use that as as an opportunity to fulfill their own sick, fucked up fantasies. And you've got this great backyard with this hot tub, and there's a pool, and there's all this texture back there. Yeah, you really did fantastically luck out with this house. Yeah, it's we like did. You just you have so many different little pockets. There. Yeah, you've got so many different layers working in that scene, and the music is referencing a bunch of different movies simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Like you're just all kind of working toward this whole thing that's going to happen. Was your idea that the speech that he gives there, was that scripted? Like, in the story of the film, like, are you telling the actor, like, the Fear Inc. guy sat you down and this is what you should say to your friend? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The whole point of Joe's character, you know, when we finally landed with the development of the script, when we finally landed on the Joe that we, like, wanted to tell the story about, was a character who was obsessed with horror films and scares and haunted houses. So that speech was his best friend knowing that this guy is going to eat up a story like this. He's not just an average dude who's like, if you and I were to hear that story, right? we'd be like, oh, I'm not calling the company and the movie's over. But Joe is not your average person. He's a horror fanatic. And if right. a horror fanatic hears that story and they're a little bit off, they're going to call the company. And so that, the whole point of that speech is, yeah, absolutely. The character, the the characters know if we tell Joe this story, he's going to call them and he's going to think right. he hired them. I guess my question is more like, did Fear Inc. help him script that speech for him to give to his friend? Or is he, are they just like, just do your thing? You know what I mean? Like how involved are they in the, in this sort of like background pre-production of like making this all happen? Got it. Got like, it. Cause you know, at a certain point we learn in the film that they've like rigged the house and it's yeah. wired and the phones and crazy, crazy stuff has gone on. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if they like had a little training session with him. Yeah. That's interesting. I think a lot of what happens, they knew sort of the bullet points, the friends, Ben and Ashley and Lindsay, they know, they knew the bullet points of what Fearink was going to do. And Fearink was going to rig up all this stuff, but they wanted that their performances for Joe to be authentic. 
So a lot of it is improv. A lot of it is like, well, if you kind of do this sort of thing, I think it's going to push them in this direction. So I don't, and they know their friend well enough to push his buttons. Yeah. I don't. So a lot of that stuff, uh, in my mind, at least wasn't fearing, giving them a direct script. It was more them working together and fearing, asking them, what do you think this guy's going to like? And them kind of collaborating on an idea. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about what you learned from this film. A first film only happens once in your career. You know, you get to uh, have this amazing first experience that you can build upon for the rest of your career. What is one of the biggest things that surprised you about the experience? I think the biggest thing was the fact that we were able to, to pull it off. And that sounds a little obvious, but I think going into the process, it felt so ominous and so daunting and so overwhelming and coming from a world of short films and sketches, doing a 90 minute film, you know, reputable cast and a, and a lot more money, even though it was no money, but it was a lot more than our funnier or Die stuff. But at the same time, you know, a half a million dollars might sound like a lot of money to somebody who's never made a film before. Yeah. But when you're paying your crew and you're renting equipment and you've got to pay for this house and, you know, the actors are all in a SAG contract and, and there's paperwork needs to get done for that. And that money goes away instantly. Yeah. The, the half a million dollars is not a lot of money. No. And that's a real that's a real fear to have is not being able to finish that film. There are dozens of films that are attempted every year for well under a million dollars that never see the light of day because they just run out of steam or money or both. Yeah. And I made the mistake of looking up those statistics before we shot this movie because I want you know, I didn't want to be too naive at the same. You wanted to give yourself an anti-pep talk. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to not let myself off the hook. Yeah. So it was daunting. It was overwhelming. But then looking back, it was like, that was, I mean, we just took it one little bit at a time and we were incredibly persistent and we were very driven and we were, we knew the movie that we wanted to make and we never let go of that idea even though towards the end of the process, you got other investors come in that have their own thoughts and premieres at a festival and then you want to sell the movie and the people that buy it have their own thoughts and it gets marketed and distributed and um, that may not look exactly like what you want. Through that whole time, we just held on to this idea of what we wanted this movie to be and that actually is the part that when I look back on the whole process, handing over the film and seeing what it becomes is the most difficult part. Making the movie now, it seems easy compared to that (laughs) so yeah i think my biggest learning experience is just anybody can go out there and make a movie really i mean the tools are available if you've got a good enough idea and a good script you can pull money together to do it and even if you don't have a good idea or money you know i think uh i think last year seven thousand feature films were submitted to the sundance film festival yeah i don't know how many of them had scripts and actors in them somebody might have just turned on a camera and put it out their window for all we know but seven thousand feature films were submitted yeah I mean, there's an extraordinary number of films. So clearly the ability to make a film exists in all of us. Yeah. And Uh, 7,000 films. What is that statistic? 7,000 films and they accept what? 120. So I think the, I think the statistic is it's the odds are higher. You have a better chance of getting into Harvard than you do of getting a film into Sundance. It's well, it's actually less than that. If you consider films in competition. Yeah. So there's 16 feature films in competition. So it's right. And you know, a guy like John Sloss will rep 10 films in a year at the festival. So it's, you know, it's insane. You know, films like pie that have no representation that are just that miracle little film that gets through the process. Yeah. My experience watching those festivals is that there's maybe one film in the whole group of 120 films. That's like that. And maybe not even that. Yeah. I've been to a lot of film festivals with shorts and very rarely do you see that. Right. Is there anything uh, you learned through this process? Something you did, a a technique you used, a process that you went through where you're like, Oh, you know what? I'm not doing that again. That didn't work. 
Yeah, I think you know when you're when you're working on a film of this budget, you realize certain areas that you you have to compromise on. One of the big things that we didn't spend enough money or time on was production design. Oddly enough, in a movie like this, so that's as a director, that's something that going into my next projects, it's that's an area that I can't skimp on. Production design is so important. You know, that was a department that could have used a lot more resources in this movie. You know, we made it work. It looks great. I don't have any negative feelings about how the film looks in terms of production design, but that's an area that, as a director, I'm like, oh, it's okay. We just just get a cool house. Right. That's all we, we don't need someone to come in and dress the set, right? You know, and right. we, we had an art department, we had all that stuff, but that was just an area that was very easily slashed because we wanted other tool, we wanted a steady cam, we wanted a dolly, and all that stuff doesn't really make a difference if what you're shooting doesn't have good production design. So, sure. That's, you know, is that I something you felt on set, or was that something you felt in the editing room watching it all kind of come together? Uh, no, it was more on set. I think I was pleasantly surprised in the edit bay that it actually looked better than what I was feeling on set. I think on set, our art, I just started to realize what our art department was telling us, which is they didn't have the resources that, you know, we don't, we didn't have any money. So it's like <laughs> there, there's something had to be skimped. And that was one area where it felt like it on set, like we're just digging deep to, to like, you, you can know, feel the lack of resources in that department yeah. every time you look through the lens. Yeah, when we're we're in this house and we're not sure if we have the rights to a, a painting that's on the wall, and we haven't really thought about that until we're right about ready to roll, and we've got actors that have been on really big TV shows. It's starting to look a little like, oh, right. and, <laughs> and, and in a moment like that, you just pull it and just like we can't clear this thing. We've just got to roll. Uh, we I think we had some paintings that were cleared on set that our art department had gotten that. I think probably appear in our film two more times than they need to for that reason. <laughs> for whatever reason, she really liked that painting yeah. and she's got it up on it's multiple walls. like five different places. What's sure. going on? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about some advice. This is an opportunity for you to think back on the experience and offer some advice to someone who might be thinking about making their own first feature film. And this is someone, you know, who might've made a couple of short films and maybe they went to film school. Maybe they didn't. It might be someone who's working in the business uh, like yourself, who's you know got some experience to draw on, but maybe not. You know, there's there's people in the middle of the country who have, you know, really robust YouTube careers creating content uh, in short form. But maybe now they're at a moment in their career and their lives where they're thinking about taking on a feature film for the first time. What kind of advice can you give? I mean, there's there's a million different things I guess we could say, but I think the biggest thing for me that I that I tell people is you you need to have a you need to have a solid script if you're going to go out and make something and not because it makes it easier to make the movie, but because there's so much content out there that if you're making something with a mediocre or less than mediocre script, you know, we're just filling this void with just crappy content at the end of the day. And that's something that you can do for free. You know, you can work on your script for years. You can have people read it for free. They can give you feedback for free. You can do table reads for free. Um, that doesn't cost you any money. So spend time working on your story. Make sure you love it. Make sure it's something you're, you want to live with for three or four years of your life. Make sure you can think about what it's going to be like to sit in a podcast three years later and talk about that movie and still genuinely care about the movie that you made. And again, that's, it's free. So spend the time on the story on the script. Cause that is the best really it's ever going to be is right before you start shooting. Cause everything kind of starts to break down from there. Meaning it's going to turn into its own beast as soon as you start shooting it, as soon as you start editing it, as soon as you start bringing other people into post. And that could be for the better. A lot of times it is for the better, but you have to start with something that's just really as good as you can get it. And it doesn't mean sit on a script for 10 years and never go out and make it, but it means get some wise people around you, get them to give you honest feedback, work on it until you're really happy with it. And that's the movie you want to make and then go do it. 
What about the first day you walk on set? <clears throat> is there anything you'd say to a first-time director right before they walk on the set for the first time? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that first day on Fearing. I was there. I was one of the first people on set the first day because I just needed to get my brain in the space and I wasn't going to be something that's going to show up right before we start shooting. So, you know, I welcomed everybody when they started showing up, cast and crew. But right before we started shooting, we had a big just team meeting with everybody. And I just gave a little, you know, a tiny little pep talk. And I told everybody, you know, we're not curing cancer here. We're making a movie. So let's have fun doing this. That was my way of saying, let's not get stressed out. Let's not yell at each other. Let's not, we're not in a war zone. This is, we're making a movie. This is entertainment. If we're not having fun making this, then we've missed the point. You know, we should be having as much fun making this as people get to have when they're watching it. So uh, I think that's, that helped maybe set a good tone on set because everyone had a good time. And that was the number one thing we heard from people on our set was that they just, they loved working on this movie and not necessarily because the content was anything special, even though they did like the content, they just loved the people that we surrounded them with and the, the mood we set on set and the vibe and we respected people's time and we fed them well. And, you know, they worked hard for it and they all, you know, our movie premiered, we shot it in LA. Everybody was based out of LA. We premiered in New York city and we had 70 people from Los Angeles that worked on the movie fly out on their own dime to go see the movie premiere. We That's had our makeup amazing. person. We had our script soupy. I mean, we had like all these people that can't really afford to be doing that, but cared so much about working on this project that they all showed up to the premiere in New York city. So that's what I would say to a first time director is, you know, you don't need to be a jerk. You don't need to be a dictator. You're collaborating with a bunch of people, set a good tone on set and you'll have, you know, surround yourself with people you trust. And uh, I don't think you'll regret your experience. Well, Vincent Michelli, thank you so much for being on Circle uh, Take. That's our show for today. Uh, the Circle Take is produced by Blue Apples Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. Check him out at themasterfader.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where there's always more episodes to check out. You can like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take, where we post photos from our conversations, schedule updates, and previews of upcoming shows. All of this, of course, the podcast, links, clips, notes, and more is all on our website at thecircletake.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Schmid, and you can circle that one.